Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America, the greatest podcast in American history. Uh, my name is Dylan Shear. I'm your host for this, our little journey through uh, the history of the United States from the end of the Civil War to the present. Uh, this episode is going to be about World War One again, the second in our two-part, two-part series on World War One. Uh, this will be focusing more on the United States and the U.S.'s role in World War One. right? The first episode was sort of about the war in general, mostly focusing on Europe. Not doing a super deep dive into it, but just sort of giving you the basics. So this one's going to be more about the U.S., right? This is an American history podcast, so focusing on the U.S. in World War One. So three big things we'll cover in this podcast. First, the build up to the war, right? So how the U.S. got involved. The U.S. didn't get involved right away in World War One. In fact, uh, really didn't get involved until the very end. Uh, so we'll look at that build up. Two, we're going to look at some crackdowns on free speech that came along with that build up. Uh, we'll see there's sort of some very devastating consequences for First Amendment rights in the United States as a result of World War One, And then finally, we'll look at the end of the war, of, end of World War I, uh, and even sort of question whether it truly, World War One ever truly ended. Okay, so some major questions here. So why did the U.S. get involved in the war, right? This was a war that was happening in Europe, in Asia, and Africa, uh, but not in the U.S. or in South America. So why did the U.S. get involved, right? It's an ocean away continents away why get involved in this at all secondly we'll look at what did we will look at what did american opposition to the war look like right as we talked about in our episode on american empire there are people opposed to the building of an american empire the same is true for world war one right there are people very much opposed to u.s involvement in world war one we'll look at who those people were what they look like and why they were opposed we'll also Sort of ask the question of what were Wilson's, Woodrow Wilson's goals for the League of Nations, right? This was going to be his big thing coming out of World War I. Um, we'll look at what he meant by that, what he wanted them to do, what the point of them was. And then we'll also sort of ask the question of how the U.S. changed as a result of World War One, right? World War One was this big, big event, and the U.S. very much came out of it a changed nation, just as Europe came out of it a changed continent. Okay, so the guy we're looking at today, our sort of highlight focus, is this guy named Eugene Debs. He's been mentioned a couple times, talked about him. Talked about him a little bit during the uh, podcast episode on the American labor movement. Sort of how he, and he was famous prior to World War One. people knew who he was, but he really, really got famous during World War One as in someone who opposed it. Uh, so working now as the leader of the Socialist Party of America, Eugene Debs ran for president five times throughout his life. Uh, in 1912, he received over a million votes. And in 1920, uh, he ran for the last time uh, running from jail. He died soon after, as, uh, soon after that, uh, sort of as a result of getting sick in jail, sort of the very poor conditions in the jail he was kept in, and he died. Uh, the reason that he was in jail is very much related to World War I, right? He wasn't just in jail because he liked being in jail. He was put there. Uh, he was arrested under the terms of the Espionage Act, for a speech that he gave in Canton, Ohio. So Ohio coming through here. What the Espionage Act did was it prohibited anti-war speech, right? So any speech, uh, and not just, you know, formal speeches, someone standing at a podium, but just talking about it. Anti, anti-war speech, right? It's people who said, I don't like this war, I think it's bad, or, you know, I think the U.S. is wrong for joining this war, could be jailed under the terms of this act. And Debs was. 
One line specifically from this speech, the working class have never yet had a voice in declaring war. If war is right, let it be declared by the people, you who have your lives to lose. Uh, and he was jailed in part for that sentiment, right? This idea, this idea that the war, World War I, was being fought by people who had no choice in whether they could fight or not, right? And we sort of see some of the truth of that, right? If you look to the last episode with the Christmas Day truce, uh, where, you know, these soldiers came out and weren't shooting each other, but were playing soccer with each other until they were forced back into the trenches by their, by their commanders. And so in some ways, Debs gives, Debs gives voice to this. Uh, if you want, you can find a full version of the speech. Mark Ruffalo gave sort of this, you know, I don't think it's the full, full speech, but it's a good portion of it. Uh, did like a reenactment of it, and you can find that online. It's pretty good. So the lead up to war. Uh, when World War I broke out, many Americans were baffled. Uh, they didn't really know what was going on. Uh, they had, you know, even like they didn't really know a lot of the alliances and entente that had led to war, right? This very confusing sort of system of alliances uh, that had led, we talked about in the last podcast episode that led to this war, right? That sort of forced the hand of a lot of nations to enter this war, right? They didn't really understand what was going on. Uh, they were, a lot of people were shocked and horrified at the news coming out of places like Verdun and the Somme, right? These horrible, horrible battlefields where there was just shelling for hours and hours at a time. People, you know, the sides fought for hundreds of days just to gain a few feet, right? Millions of people would die at these battles. And it sort of shocked and horrified a lot of people of what was going on over there. Uh, many referred to it as, quote-unquote, the European War, right? World War terminology hadn't come in yet. You know, if you look at the Billings Daily Tribune, they call European War breaks, right? Russia and Germany talking about this. Uh, so not everyone really knows what's going on. It wasn't, for many Americans, though, as we talked about, right, there have been lots of immigration coming from Europe recently. And many of those Americans supported their own country's war efforts, right? They had completely severed all ties to their old countries, and so if they're from Germany or, you know, from the Austro-Hungarian Empire or whatever, they were much more likely to support their home country's war efforts. You know, people, Chicago, for instance, have people from Germany, Italy, all parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? Like, the, you know, the Bohemians, uh, Czechoslovakia, all, right, all these places. The problem was that many of the political leaders in the United States were heavily in favor of the United Kingdom and its allies like France, right? So you have this sort of split coming from the difference of like sort of recent immigrants who they're supporting in the war versus sort of political leaders and who they're supporting in the war, right? You have uh, sort of different sides brewing up. Uh, because of these two sort of two competing factors, right? He wanted to sort of cut a middle line. There was no sort of easy option for Wilson in this. He urged neutrality at first. So he said, we shouldn't get involved in the war, right? This is a European war. Let's stay out of it. You know, there's lots of people in the United States who support one side. Lots of people in the United States support the other side, right? And World War One, remember, isn't this sort of story of like a lot of, you know, if you watch like Wonder Woman, uh, the first Wonder Woman movie, you think that, you know, that the Germans were fascists in World War One. That's not the case, right? It's a much more sort of complicated story than that. Uh, it isn't sort of this Nazis versus everyone else story that World War Two is. That's really, that's not the case at all. And so it wasn't sort of like an obvious, uh, you know, 
sort of moral choice here. Uh, and so Wilson formally proclaimed the U.S. as neutral on August 4th, 1914, right? So at the beginning of the war. And, in, and that stayed sort of the case for a while, right? In 1916, he ran for office on the slogan, he kept us out of war. Not exactly the most pithy, catchy uh, you know, slogan, but sort of that's what he ran on, right? Keeping, keeping neutral. That was sort of seen as a good thing. This isn't to say that neutrality was simple or easy. Neutrality doesn't often mean just sitting it out, right? You're sort of on the sidelines. The U.S. had trade relations with all of these countries, diplomatic relations with all these countries, and they needed to, you know, go through that. And in fact, uh, sort of as a result of the Industrial Revolution, everything we've been talking about here recently, right, the U.S. economic interests were now global, especially talking about the, you know, the building of the U.S. empire, territories in the Philippines, territories in Hawaii, Alaska, right? You have to keep all of these interests in South and Central America, and then trade interests abroad, right? Still very much, you know, China, India, all these countries, the U.S. very much has trade interests in. Their economic ties are vastly global, and this war is sort of messing up those ties. So staying neutral isn't really just like, hey, we're neutral, don't bother us, right? That really doesn't work, especially because a lot of businessmen didn't want to just stop trading because a war was going on, right? They still wanted to make money. And in fact, a lot of them thought they could make more money out of this war. It wasn't solely just money either. There were lots of Americans who wanted to continue to travel. You know, exploring the continent was still a thing. Uh, you know, certain people, lots of people still had ties to Europe. They wanted to go on vacation. Uh, and so they wanted to maintain these sort of ties to allow them to do that. Also, it wasn't just about Americans either. Both sides of this conflict, the Central Powers and the Allied Powers, needed and wanted American food and war supplies. Uh, war sort of devastated the economies of these European nations, right? Uh, their, the places where they grew food, the actual like fields that they grow food, turned into battlefields, ruined their ability to grow, you know, wheat, corn, all these staples. And then also their manufacturing economies were turned into war manufacturing economies, right? So instead of making pants or making cars, they were making military, I guess they wouldn't be really making cars, but they were making military vehicles. They were making, uh, you know, uniforms for soldiers, right? Things not going back into the regular economy. So they needed to get stuff from the U.S. Uh, and at first, the U.S. tried to maintain its sort of neutrality in trading, right? They sold supplies to both the Central and the Allied powers. They weren't really picking sides. But this sort of neutrality really starts to fail. It sort of be partly because it was against both the long-term strategies of the Central and Allied powers, right? Both the Central Powers and the Allied Powers wanted the U.S. to trade only to them. It didn't make sense to maintain this sort of neutral relationship with what was basically the world's biggest non-war economy at that time, right? They all needed it, and they would behoove them to make sure that their enemy didn't get those supplies. Well, they continued to get those supplies. So both sides, the Central Powers and the Allied Powers, began working to make sure that they were the only ones getting goods from America, right? Doing everything they could to stop the other side from getting those goods. The British uh, mined the North Sea, right? The North Sea uh, is sort of that, what separates Germany from England. Uh, so it's a big, big shipping area. Uh, and they, in, in doing so, they forced American ships to come to their ports uh, and to sell goods destined for Germany, right? These American merchants weren't going to risk sending their ships through these mined waters where they could explode and lose all their goods. 
So they would sell them to the British instead, ensuring that they made a profit. Germany's ports were sort of all in the North Sea. But it wasn't just Britain working to do this. Germany also was working to remove American neutrality. They began using U-boats. That's the letter U, boats. The first sort of effective submarines used in war. They would change naval warfare forever, right? One of these huge advances in naval warfare. Uh, U-boats, you know, you, you think of them as more World War II things, I, uh, I would assume. But a lot of they did first start being used in World War One. Uh, they were horrible things to, like, be on. Very, very filthy uh, boats, submarines, very, very cramped. Um, there was one that had only two toilets for 50 men. Uh, and one of those toilets also served as a food locker, right? So not exactly pristine conditions. Uh, Navy men who are on board these U-boats couldn't shower or change clothes for two months. It's, it's like really, really just awful, awful conditions, but they sort of were very effective for German naval strength, right? They made a lot of difference. Uh, and in 1915, sort of as trying as a result of trying to get sole access to American goods, uh, the Germans announced their practice of unrestricted warfare. This meant that they would attack and torpedo without warning any ship near Great Britain. Now, this is sort of against you know these international rules of war, which is always sort of a bit of a misnomer, right? They're really not rules if no one enforces them, and people break them all the time. Uh, but that was sort of considered like a step beyond, right? That you're attacking these merchant ships uh, without warning uh, and torpedoing them, potentially killing civilians. And this unrestricted warfare did do that. Uh, killed thousands of people, many of them civilians. I should be clear here that uh, while the Germans were really the ones to practice this quote-unquote unrestricted warfare, that doesn't mean the Allied powers did not also kill civilians, perhaps less intentionally than the Germans, uh, but civilians were killed on both sides of this conflict. So one of the big things that sort of started pushing the U.S. more and more towards joining up with the Allies after this unrestricted or warfare was the sinking of the Lusitania. Uh, the Lusitania was a British passenger ship, passenger liner, think like, you know, the Titanic, but a little smaller, that also transported war material, right? So it wasn't just transporting passengers, also transporting war goods. Uh, Germany uh, knew, that, knew this, and they knew they were going to attack it, and they took out ads. The German nation bought ads in U.S. newspapers telling people not to sail on it, right? Saying, we are going to attack this ship. Ship, do not sail on this ship. And they attacked that ship. On May 7th, 1915, German U-boats sunk the Lusitania. Uh, more than 1,000 civilians died, uh, including 128 Americans. This was a tragedy, obviously, that all these people died. Anti-German newspapers sort of railed against this, uh, the action of, of the Germans, right? Most of these you know, didn't mention that there was war material on board or that they had been warned. And I'm not, you know, justifying that. I'm just saying that there are these other sort of extenuating circumstances that were happening there that didn't get mentioned. Um, as a result of this, innocent German Americans across the United States were attacked by angry mobs in the U.S., right? Sort of blaming them this anti-German hysteria, even though they had nothing to do with it. Uh, as a result of the sinking of the Lusitania and sort of this massive outcry across the U.S., Wilson threatened U.S. entry into war. 
on the side of the Allied powers, saying, you know, how can we support, how can we sell to a country that has done this to our own citizens? Uh, Germany temporarily ended its program of unrestricted warfare after this. All right, they said, you know, we will do warnings. Uh, that restriction didn't last very long. Uh, they brought it back in 1917, sort of as this last-ditch effort to get supplies and food because Germany itself was sort of starving, didn't have any uh, supplies or food, and really needed them. Uh, to get them. They thought that they'd perhaps win sort of this one front war, even if the Americans had joined. That ended up not being the case. Another thing that pushed Americans into war, right, Lusitania didn't fully do it, uh, was also the Black Tom explosion. This happened on July 30th, 1916. German agents, German spies, destroyed a U.S. munitions supply cache. Uh, that was, you know, like scheduled to be sent to the Allied powers. This big old depot of arms, weapons, munitions, right? This sounds sort of like a far cry mission, but it happened in real life. They destroyed it by blowing it up. Uh, this explosion killed four people and destroyed about $20 million worth of munitions. It is one of, if not the biggest, uh, largest non-nuclear explosion in the history of the world. Right, this was huge, huge, huge. Twenty million dollars worth of munitions, even like especially in you know nineteen sixteen, is a massive amount of munitions. And if they all go up at once, that's a giant explosion. Uh, debris from the explosion injured the Statue of Liberty. Right, so this massive, massive destruction. You know, and the fact that it hurt the sort of symbol of America. Right, is this poignant sort of image. And it caused even further crackdowns on German-Americans, more hatred toward these innocent German-American immigrants. Uh, and even years later, FDR would use the Black Tom explosion as part of his rationale for the internment of Japanese-Americans during World War One, saying, hey, you know, we can't let something like this happen again, and doing this awful internment thing as a result of it. But neither the sinking of the Lusitania or the Black Tom explosion really pushed the U.S. into war. What actually pushed the U.S. into war uh, was two things. One, the return of unrestricted U-boat warfare, right, that last-ditch effort by Germany, and what's called the Zimmerman Note, sort of put forward the final push to bring the U.S. into war. The Zimmerman Note was a telegraph sent by German by the German Foreign Secretary instructing the German minister in Mexico to start proposing a military alliance between Mexico and Germany. Interestingly enough, there are always, you know, some conspiracy theories behind the Zimmerman note. Um, the British had actually decoded the message earlier, but the British kept it from the U.S. for a while, sort of waiting for the perfect moment to reveal it. Right, they wanted to. They wanted it to be this big, big, big moment because they thought it might finally push the U.S. into war. Uh, the Zimmerman note actually was sent through the U.S. ambassador first, as sort of as a result of the neutrality of the U.S., the U.S. had agreed to send messages for Germany um, after their telegraph cables were cut during the war. That's not really crazy an offer as it sounds, right? This happens all the time. Switzerland is often used as a sort of diplomatic cutout, so you can send, you know, official, unofficial messages through a different country. So as everyone know, well, it might not have actually, you know, been like pushed the U.S. fully into war alone, it did sort of act as the straw that sort of like broke the camel's back, as they say. Um, finally pushing the U.S. into war. And you can actually look at the Zimmerman telegram. It's sent on a Western Union telegram line, which is sort of funny. 
Uh, looks like just a series of numbers because it's encoded, uh, but you can view it online. It's very easy to find. So the U.S. finally enters World War One on April second, nineteen seventeen. Wilson asked Congress for a formal declaration of war. That is something that Congress has uh, the sole power to do, as given to us by the Constitution, though in practice that sort of has gone away. In his request, Wilson declared that the war had a moral purpose, not to punish Germany, but to create a new international order and make the world safe for democracy, right? So sort of the same thing they did with the Philippines, with the Spanish-American War, where they're like, we're not doing this to, you know, take Cuba under our control, but for moral purposes. And once again, we'll see how that actually really works out. Not everyone supported uh, the U.S. entering the war. There are still plenty of isolationists in the U.S. Six senators and 50 congresspeople voted against the war, right? So that's a, a pretty decent chunk of people. These included Jeanette Rankin, a representative from Montana, the only woman, uh, the only person to vote against entering both World War One and World War Two. No one else would have that same honor. Wilson believed that entering World War One was really the only way to get to sort of create this new international order that he wanted to create, uh, and he did eventually sort of get his wish, but only eventually uh, on April sixth. So uh, four days after declaring war on Germany, the U.S. declared a war on the remaining Central Powers. However, it took a while for American troops to actually see battle, and they wouldn't see battle until six months later, right? They had to get over there, train them, supply them, do all this stuff. Wilson also began to sort of start trying to change public opinion on the war, get people behind it, and so started this huge propaganda and coercion campaign to get people to support the war. One of the first things he did was form what's called the Committee on Public Information, the CPI. The CPI created and distributed millions of pieces of propaganda. You know, sort of wake up America, civilization calls every man, woman, child to fight this war, right? They hired, so that's sort of the messaging they're using, that it's like, you know, defending civilization. They hired famous artists, journalists, and others to support the war cause, urged people to buy war bonds, lower coal usage, and quote-unquote beat the Hun, right? There's just really anti-German messaging here, uh, you know, calling Germans the Huns, saying that they were, you know, brutes, painting them as these, like, giant apes, right? Sort of very racist uh, messaging against the Germans. Uh, the government was also worried about what they called hyphenated Americans, quote-unquote. Uh, so, you know, German Americans, Italian Americans, that sort of thing, right? Those hyphens. Um, recent immigrants who still sort of maintain those strong ties to their homelands. They wanted to turn them into 100% Americans, quote-unquote. And to do that, they encouraged them to show their loyalty to America uh, by buying war bonds, right? So this idea, you have to show your, you know, your loyalty and support for your new country by, by paying them, basically. Um, it wasn't just these sort of like propaganda campaigns, though. There's also coercion going on. Uh, government took steps to silence sort of any and all critics of the war. Uh, we talked about the Espionage Act of 1917 that jailed Eugene Debs. It wasn't just jail. It was also huge fines to anyone who protested or spoke out against the war effort. Uh, the Postmaster General allowed the seizure and destruction of treasonous publications. Right, So anyone writing about the war right, could have their mail read and destroyed and, and be fined. Also, Postmaster General is such a funny term. It seems so, like, highfalutin. Um, 
schools also stopped teaching German. Some towns changed their name, right? If their town had a German heritage, they changed that name. You know, sauerkraut became freedom, liberty cabbage, all that sort of stuff. Uh, all this sort of very anti-German rhetoric. And as a result of all this coercion, many people started really questioning what freedom meant in the wake of this repression, right? If we're supposed to be fighting for freedom in World War One, you know, fighting for civilization, then why are why are we being jailed for exercising our rights, right? Uh, so these questions started to pop up. Uh, most of the people who received the brunt of these crackdowns were on the left. Uh, the IWW, for example, uh, received a lot of sort of jail and uh, fines during this time. They're effectively disbanded, or at least you know cut the heads off of the IWW, thanks to the sort of espionage act. Uh, the first Red Scare was happening with the creation of the, you know, communist Russia, really brought about this sort of like big anti-left push, anti-communist, anti-socialist push in the United States that we'll see really rise in the wake of World War One. Ah, so the U.S. in the war. As I mentioned in the last episode, uh, the U.S. didn't actually do that much fighting. Uh, the army was really woefully unprepared, right? They didn't um, quite know what they were doing, um, or they didn't have, like, supplies caught up. You know, they didn't have, like, everything prepared to sort of enter this big international global war. And by the end of the war, only 5 million people entered the military. I say only 5, that is a big, big number, but comparatively to the forces that you know, Europe was putting forward, it was paltry. And of those 5 million, only about 2.5 million actually made it overseas. Uh, the U.S. economy was not turned into a wartime economy. We'll see that happening during World War II. But in, US, in, the, in World War I, right, most industry remained what it was before the war. Uh, on top of that, American political leaders refused to allow troops to be commanded by British or French officers. This created a lot of problems, right? Uh, you really, in sort of wars like this, best case scenario, you get this fully uh, integrated structure with all these countries, but the U.S. was like, no, Americans only fight for American officers, which created a lot of problem. Uh, some other stuff about American troops in World War One. Uh, the forces were still segregated, right? There were black regiments and white regiments. Several black regiments did serve in World War One, often to great effect with great valor. Uh, and they were all led by white commanders, right? Black officers were not allowed at this time. About 200,000 uh, black troops served in Europe, uh, and they were largely forced to dig latrines and other non-combat duties. All right, so given like the worst work for the soldiers, uh, many black soldiers fondly remember serving with French soldiers during this time. Uh, they did not; they weren't treated as sort of these lesser people by these French soldiers, and they really fondly remember that. And in fact, a lot of them, not a lot of them, um, some of them stayed in France after the end of World War One, right, because of the way they'd been treated during that war, as they remained in Paris, and they became sort of a, a growing sort of black Parisian uh, arts and culture scene as a result of this. The U.S. Army also used uh, Choctaw uh, Indians as communication agents to sort of befuddle German spies. An important thing to note here, uh, at this point in time, Native peoples did not have citizenship in the United States automatically, and so many of the soldiers here were not U.S. citizens despite fighting for the U.S. Uh, there was 19 Choctaw Code Talkers, um, and they wouldn't receive nationwide citizenship until 1924. 
um, these guys, uh, Robert Taylor, Jeff Nelson, Calvin Wilson, Mitchell Bob, Pete Maytubby, Ben Carterby, Albert Billy, Ben Hampton, Joseph Oklahombe, Joe Davenport, George Davenport, Ben Colbert, and Noel Johnson are these sort of chalk talk code talkers, right? These really brave guys uh, fighting sort of for their country and helping the U.S. war effort. So I'm not going to go through all the battles the U.S. fought in or, you know, all that stuff again, other places to find that. Uh, but as we know, sort of the, the allied powers in the U.S. would uh, would win the war, right? Uh, and so, but they also have to end the war. Winning the war isn't just winning it. You also have to end it. And Wilson really wanted a huge influence on how the war would end, right? Remember, this whole thing was creating this new international, you know, diplomatic unit, right? Uh, and he wanted to be able to do that through the ending of this war. So on January 8th, 1918, he issued something called the 14 points, right? Which would be his big sort of speech and outlining his goals for what the post-war sort of peace settlement should look like and what it should do. Uh, the Allies were a little shocked about this, right? The U.S. had only entered the war less than a year ago. Uh, and now he was wanting to sort of dictate how it would end, right? Like, we fought this war for so long, millions of our people have died. It makes sense that we are the ones who decide how to end this war. And you come in here, you know, fresh off the boat, trying to, like, tell us how to do all this stuff. That's ridiculous. As a progressive, sort of, Wilson saw the U.S. as this moral force, right? One who could change the world for good through his leadership, through, you know, its leadership, right? And so really wanted to sort of put to push this forward. Sort of his 14 points, there's sort of a wide variety of things. Uh, some of them were specific, right? Like d dividing Austria-Hungary, redrawing the Balkans. Uh, but they were largely sort of a blueprint for the world, right? These ideas of open diplomacy, freedom of the seas, getting rid of economic barriers to trade, right? So these broader, broader ideas for how he thought the world should work based off of his understanding of progressivism. Uh, so Germany saw the end of the war coming as well. The, in a October 1918, they reached out to Wilson to try and end the war on a, quote, peace without victory basis. Uh, Wilson did consider this, but the rest of the allies refused uh, really wanting to punish Germany, right? They saw Germany as the aggressor, even if Germany did not start the war, right? Remember, Austria-Hungaria and Serbia were sort of the middle conflict, but Germany became the scapegoat for all this, and the Allies really wanted to punish them. Uh, and Wilson did threaten to pull out of the war if the Allies punished Germany, uh, but that didn't take really effect. Uh, the war ended on November 11th, 11 1918, when both sides signed an armistice. And this day is known as Armistice Day and celebrated uh, in much of Europe. So the Treaty of Versailles, this was going to be the big thing that ended the war. Um, these peace talks right after the war ended started taking place in Paris following the armistice. Uh, the Allies were operating very much from a position of power. Germany was practically starving. Uh, they clearly had lost. Austro-Hungarian Empire had fallen apart. Ottoman Empire had fallen apart. Germany was really the last one standing. Uh, instead of sending an ambassador, Wilson himself went to Versailles, right? So dedicated to this cause uh, that he was. This is a very unusual step. No other really uh, heads of state came. They sent ambassadors. Uh, he was greeted as a hero in Paris by the people of Paris. But not everyone at the bargaining table agreed with his 14 points, right? Many of them wanted to brutally punish Germany. And in fact, Germany wasn't even allowed at the peace talks at the table, right? Their representatives wouldn't be sat. 
Uh, Wilson himself had little success implementing his 14 points. Uh, right, the the pressures from the Allies were so great to punish Germany, they didn't really have a leg to push a stand on to push back on. Uh, Germany was forced to accept full responsibility for the war and pay heavy fines. Right, despite not starting the war, uh, if you go back, right, they came in because of these uh, contracts. You could argue Austro-Hungaria started the war. You could argue the Serbian nationalists started the war. But it's really hard to argue that Germany started the war. Uh, some of the things he did get, Wilson did get, was that there were self-determinations for nations formerly under the control of empires, right? Uh, that's just the case for European countries. Uh, that's not the case for sort of African countries who continued to be colonial empires as well as, you know, these Asian countries that continue to be part of the colonial empires of these European groups. But sort of, you know... Localities that were in the former Austro-Hungarian Empire got to decide, you know, their own nationhood. Also, the League of Nations would be created at the Treaty of Versailles, one of these big, you know, international governing units that Wilson really wanted. Uh, and both of these things would have major consequences. All of these things would have major consequences, which will be discussed in sort of later podcasts. They'll come back to us. Uh, so the Treaty of Versailles was passed and signed, but. Despite him being there, uh, Wilson is not the one who got final approval over whether the U.S. would accept the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, right? The way our Constitution is set up, that power goes to Congress. Uh, they can approve or deny any treaties, and Wilson refused to consult with Congress during the Treaty of Versailles. He had this vision, he said, my way or the highway. He didn't say that highways didn't exist yet, but he's like, you know, my way. Um... And so many senators, because of Wilson's refusal to work with them, including isolationists like Henry Cabot Lodge, did not want the U.S. to remain involved in European affairs after the war. And they saw the League of Nations doing exactly that. Uh, the League of Nations required states involved to militarily defend one another. And the U.S. is like, the senators are like, hell no, we're not doing that, right? We don't want to get involved in another of these giant wars. Well, the one started because of all these treaties. We're not doing that again. So the U.S. did not ratify the Treaty of Versailles, and they never joined the League of Nations. This really mentally broke Wilson, right? He, this was his life's goal, basically, and here he was stopped just short of the finish line by people in his own party and by Congress. Uh, he died in 1924, partly as a result of, the, of a stroke he had while campaigning for to get support for this treaty, right? It really just broke him. His wife sort of had to do a lot of his stuff in office after, uh, before he died, right? It was really just mentally bad for him. Um, legacies of World War One, right? So Europe, where we sort of leave this story of World War One, Europe is in tatters and lost an entire generation of people to the war, right? Literally the lost generation. By the 1930s, the League of Nations was irrelevant, largely because the U.S. was not involved, couldn't support it. Treaty of Versailles would directly create, we'll talk about this in a couple of podcasts later, would directly create many of the conditions that would lead to World War II. And in fact, a lot of people argue that World War I and World War II are just the same war with about a 20-year gap in between. Uh, the U.S., for the first time, became a creditor on the international stage instead of a debtor, right? People started owing us money instead of us owing them money. Uh, the U.S. was still really unsure of its role in the world, but 
had sort of set the stage for becoming this international superpower, right? There are still some people who want us to remain isolationist, but many, many more do not. So some sort of conclusions here. World War I was sort of the last gasp of isolationist power in the U.S., right? Keeping the U.S. out of World War I for so long. Uh, and the rejection of the Treaty of Versailles was sort of the final victory for the isolationists. Uh, Wilson's version of this sort of international progressivism failed to take root in the United States at this time. And World War I, the end of it, saw the U.S. on the brink of becoming a world power. All right, that's it for today's podcast. Next week, we'll be talking about the Roaring Twenties in the United States. Uh, But for now, have a great rest of your day.